This is the third Sunday of this new year. And the past two Sundays, we've been looking at what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is to be one who worships God. We looked at what John saw in Revelations chapter 4 and 5 when he's given insight into heaven. And what he sees, in a word, is worship. If we would be allowed a few more words, we would say that it is worship as represented or happening in the context of creation and new creation. This is seen in Revelation 4, in which we see the four creatures, I think representing creation, And then we have the 24 elders on thrones. These are the royal priesthood, uh, representing the new creation. Then last Sunday, we saw that part of that worship is shown to us in Revelation 5.8, in which the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we have seen in the past few weeks that worship is to involve in part scripture, the reading of scripture and worship is the central way in which we acknowledge that we learn of who God is and what he has done. And from scripture, we gain fuel, if you wish, for our prayers. So we've seen prayer is answering speech. It's our part of the conversation. God begins the conversation and we respond in prayer. We saw last week that in prayer we find the overlap of heaven and earth. The earth has yet to be redeemed. God is bringing heaven to earth, if you wish, in the person of his son. When Jesus was asked by his disciples how they should pray, he gave them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And in it we hear the overlap. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live at the point in which heaven and earth, the future and the present, are crunching together. This is where we live. Heaven and earth have overlapped permanently in the person of Jesus, where he stands, where he died, where he was raised. Living as a Christian means living in a world as it has been reshaped by and around Jesus and the Spirit of God. As I said last week, this means that prayer is not as easy as we might imagine, but we are not left alone. There is help available. I talked about that last week. As we've seen the past two Sundays, we tend to fail to read Scripture as we should and to pray as we should. And I gave reasons each Sunday for this, and at least three are found in both lists. The first is that we are lazy, that in fact... We we need to consider the reality that we find time to do the things that are important to us. Um, If prayer and the reading of scripture were important to us, we would find the time. I think more than that, though, there is a sense of pride, of self-sufficiency, that we don't need to read the scripture. We know it already and that we really don't need to pray unless we're really in a bad way. The third is the absence of worship. Both reading the scripture and praying become more than avenues, or I'm sorry, for us, if we are lazy and if we are proud, the reading of Scripture and prayer will become mere avenues of information. We get information from Scripture. We give God information in our prayer list. We saw last Sunday that one of the difficulties in prayer, and there are many difficulties, I would suggest, is the fact that prayer is to involve both intimacy and reverence. We are able to call God our Father, 
that is intimacy. It's not merely a formal title. It speaks of one who is our father. But then there is to be reverence and awe. We see this in Revelation 4 and 5. To do one, I think, we might think is doable. I can do intimacy or I can do awe or reverence. But to do both at the same time in the same prayer, well, frankly, just seems impossible. Well, if we were on our own, it would be impossible, but we are not on our own. Today, I want us to consider another aspect of public worship, and that is the Lord's Supper or Communion. And I want us to do so in light of what John saw in heaven. Some things to consider, a couple brief and then the, the others more extended. First of all, the place of eating in worship. This is a subject for a series on its own. Um, I'll try to be brief. In the ancient world, eating meals was part of worship. People went to temples and they ate meals in the presence of the God. It is my belief that the counterfeit comes after the genuine. And I say this because oftentimes people think that the Jews or the Hebrews copied the world around them and then we're, we're copying them. Um, when it comes to the matter of food, of sacrifice, of worship, the genuine that God intended, I think, has been there from the beginning. We see it with Abel as he gives offerings from his flock to God in worship. And then we see this repeated in the law that was given at Sinai. Let me just read to you a couple passages. In Deuteronomy 12, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go, there to bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. And interestingly, in a passage on tithing in Deuteronomy 14, instructions are given, including this statement. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Worshiping God means eating in his presence. When we come to the New Testament, we see something very similar in Acts chapter 2. that They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then in verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. I don't know that we think of eating as worshiping God. And yet we see very much in Scripture that it is to be a part of our worship. And if we had any doubts, when we get to the book of Revelation, we find in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So eating and worshiping are to go together. second thing that I would have you consider is the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, what we call the Last Supper. We know from the Gospel accounts that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover meal. This is something that God had instituted. 
And within that context, he inaugurated what we know as the Lord's Supper. And from that event, it has become a part of Christian worship. But now I want to come to what we find in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Paul's letter to the Corinthians tries in part to correct problems that had arisen. And in dealing with several of them, he brings up the matter of the Lord's Supper. The second problem actually deals with how they're doing the Lord's Supper. They are abusing it. But the first one is found here in chapter 10. It's actually the third of three chapters in which Paul is dealing with the issue of eating meat that has been offered to idols. Specifically, there are people in the congregation who say, listen, an idol is nothing. It's a false god. It's not real. So I can go to a temple, which were the restaurants of the ancient world, which were also the meat markets of the ancient world, and I can go there and eat because I know an idol is nothing. But there were other Christians who could not do that in good conscience. And if they went to the old temple where they used to worship before they became Christians, their consciences would be defiled. And Paul has to write three entire chapters to deal with this matter of is it okay to eat meat that is offered to idols? In chapter 10, Paul begins this chapter by pointing to the example of Israel. He does so, I think, and remember this is his side of the conversation. We have to imagine what the Corinthians are saying. That the Corinthians have imagined that because they take communion, they are immune from anything a pagan god can throw at them that they will stay in the faith, and that they are immune from falling away from the faith. If I have communion, then I can go to a pagan temple and nothing will happen to me. My faith won't waver. I'll be as strong as I was. And Paul writes chapter 10 to say that's not the case, particularly in the first four verses. He tells us, look what happened to Israel, and if it happened to Israel, it could happen to you guys in Corinth. Look, if you would, at the first four verses here. In 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Three things to note here. The word for means that there's a connection with what has happened previously. And then he calls them brothers. We see this if you go through the book of Corinthians. Paul was always careful to remind the Corinthians that he had not rejected them. He hadn't given up on them, that they were, in fact, his brothers and sisters in Christ. Something else, though, he speaks of their forefathers. As best we can tell, the majority of believers in Corinth were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. So if you're talking about Israel back in the wilderness, you're talking about the Jews and not the Gentiles. And yet Paul sees a real connection because they were the people of God and the Corinthians are in fact the people of God. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. This is an expression by which Paul says, basically, I'm not telling you something you don't know. Okay? But I want you to look at it from a different angle and to consider it in a different way. The Corinthians knew the story. They knew the data, okay? He wants them to understand meaning, the significance of that data. And so he tells the story, briefly, of Israel 
in the Exodus and in the wilderness. And he does something very striking. He takes the Red Sea experience and then the manna and then the experience when Moses hit the rock and the water came out and he translates those into baptism and communion. How is this possible? Well, if you look, he says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, they passed under the cloud and they all passed through the Red Sea, the, the pillar of cloud and the Red Sea itself. Paul sees this as a type of baptism. Baptized into Moses, this is a type of what would happen later on with the coming of Jesus. And then they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. This is from Exodus 16 and Exodus 17. Just parenthetically, why use the word spiritual? If you know Paul's writings, but particularly here in 1 Corinthians, whenever he uses the word spiritual, he doesn't use it the way that they do. The Corinthians use it to mean better than everyone else. That is, you could be like a Christian, but then you can be a spiritual Christian and you've sort of moved up several notches. For Paul, if it is spiritual, it comes from the Spirit of God. And so, in a real sense, I think that the Corinthians have seen communion as spiritual food, and this is going to protect them magically from anything that might come their way. Paul says that's not the case. And in fact, this food came from God, and this water came from the rock, who is a type of Christ. And therefore, he uses the word spirit. It is Christ who sustained them in the wilderness. And yet, you look at verse number five, God was not pleased with them, and many of them died in the wilderness. Now we go to verse number 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Therefore means he's drawing a conclusion. Now it is not brothers, but even something in a sense more intimate. My dear friends, he loves them. That's why he's writing this to them. Run away from idolatry. Flee from it. Don't go to the local pagan temple and say, I can take this. I'm a Christian. I've had communion. Nothing can touch me. He says, flee from idolatry. And then he brings in the matter of the Lord's Supper. This is the second time he's done so here in this chapter. He speaks of the participation, that famous word in Greek that many Christians know, koinonia, in the blood and the body of Christ. Some people, by the way, take this passage to mean transubstantiation, that somehow the body and the blood are changed into the body and blood. The elements are changed into the body and blood of Christ. The only problem is Paul will use the same language, participation, when it comes to demons. And I don't think we would say transubstantiation with demons, even with pagan food. But Paul does something here, I don't know if you caught it as I read it, that is not done anywhere else in the New Testament. And Paul doesn't do it anywhere else. That is, he puts the cup before the bread. Did you notice that? 
participation in the, in the blood of Christ, and then participation in the body. Traditionally, it has always been the bread first, and then the cup. Now, I'm assuming that Paul knew what he was doing, that this is not a mistake on his part. He didn't get confused. Uh, he knows what he is doing. I think what he is telling us is this, that we have a relationship, fellowship, koinonia with Christ in the cup. But it is in the bread that we have participation, we have fellowship, koinonia with each other. In fact, if you look at verse number 17, we see one loaf, one body, one loaf. We are the body of Christ. And so when we have communion, we affirm our union with Christ, our participation, our fellowship with Jesus Christ in the cup. But in the bread, we affirm our unity, our union with one another. It's fairly important stuff. In the chapter that follows, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul deals with a series of problems in public worship. The second one of which will take up the second half of the chapter. It deals with abuses of the Lord's Supper. If they've just read what Paul said in chapter 10, that it is in fact participation in the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ, I think they would almost anticipate what he's going to say here in chapter 11. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 17 of chapter 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. The Corinthians had written to Paul about some certain matters. This isn't one of them. This is something he has heard a report of, and he says he believes what he has heard. Um, somehow when it comes to the matter of the Lord's Supper and Communion, they are really doing a great disservice. And by the way, do you notice how he starts out at the beginning? He says you do more damage, you do more harm. In other words, you would have been better off staying home than coming together in public worship and abusing the Lord's Supper. The problem is not spelled out as clearly as we might like, but Paul's not writing to me in 2012. Paul's writing to Corinthians. They know what the problem is. So he doesn't have to give all the details. They know exactly what's going on. If we could guess, we could guess that in fact this, has, this is breaking down along socioeconomic lines. That you have people who had money and you have people who do not. And somehow the people who have money are not waiting for those who don't, and they're just going ahead and just having a wonderful time in public worship and neglecting their brothers and sisters. We don't know the exact structure of public worship in the early church. 
We do know that their services had prayer, they had singing, the reading of scripture, preaching, and they had the Lord's Supper. The order of things we're not clear about, we're not told. The early church did not have buildings. They met in people's homes. And if you think about it, they had to meet in the homes of people who had homes big enough to accommodate the congregation. These would be the wealthier members of the church. The owner of the home might be seen as the host. Um, Archaeology has shown that the dining room, traditionally used by the family, would not be large enough for a congregation, and so they would sit in the courtyard, in the atrium. This means that, in fact, you could have two things happening. You could have a meal in the dining room, and then you could say, well, let's all adjourn to the atrium, and there we will have worship. And in the process, what you have done is you have excluded certain people. Paul says, I have no praise for you in this, for your meetings do more harm than good. I mentioned that a few moments ago, but just stop and think a minute. What a powerful thing this is to say. That your public worship actually does more harm than it does good. They have come together as God's people, but in the process they have done great harm. Verse number 19 is worth noting, and I don't know if I heard a chuckle or two from the congregation as I read this, because I think Paul is just being really sarcastic here, where he's like, well, obviously there have to be differences, you know, to show whom, who God favors. You know, that you could say, oh, God has blessed brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, and obviously they have gotten more of God's favor than everyone else. I think Paul is very much tongue-in-cheek here. Uh, the Corinthians are very much about divisions that some are more spiritual than others, and those who are more spiritual perhaps are more prosperous financially, and so they can't wait for the less spiritual people. They'll just go ahead and do communion on their own. And so Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. I think they would say, well, yes, it is. We're having church and we're doing the Lord's Supper. And Paul would say, no, it's not. Because each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. Not everyone is allowed to participate. As the Corinthians have set up, not everyone is allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. Paul's not happy about this because they have done a great disservice. Paul then writes what I read every Sunday when we have communion. If you look again in chapter 11, verse number 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's version here is something closer to what we find in the Gospel of Luke. It differs from what we find in Matthew and Mark. Um, it's not exactly like Luke, but I don't want to get distracted by that. I would say that Paul brings up the tradition at this point in his argument 
to make the point that they are doing something completely contrary to what Jesus intended. Paul's focus here, as we find in Luke, is that of remembering, of remembering what Jesus has done. And what the Corinthians are doing is failing to remember the Lord Jesus as they should, and they are failing to proclaim the Lord's death as they should. I would just remind you that remembering in the Bible is not simply mental activity. It carries with it activity. God remembers his people we read in the Old Testament. That means he visits them. There's that wonderful passage in Ruth chapter 1 where Naomi, after losing her husband and her two sons, they had moved because of the famine, and then she hears that God had remembered his people and visited them, and she decides it's time to go back home. Remembering is not simply something up here. It is to inform our activities. Israel was told time and time again to remember, and they did so by building a memorial or by reenacting a ritual. The remembrance here is of the salvation that the Lord Jesus has provided. They are to remember this. And they are to remember that the salvation Jesus has provided has made them one people. Well, by doing what they're doing, they're throwing this out the window. They're completely ignoring certain uh, portions of the community, of the congregation, and simply going ahead on their own. They are not remembering. They're simply doing as they please. But why not? Because they think it's magical. Somehow this will give me immunity and then I can live the life I want to live. In doing so, they are dishonoring the Lord and they are abusing, they are failing to remember. Paul continues. Look, if you would, in verse number 27. Therefore, again, he's drawing a conclusion here. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we are judged ourselves, if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And then Paul throws in, and when I come, I will give further directions. Paul makes a series of points here. First of all, there is a warning against eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. If you do so, you are sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The remedy he proposes is to examine oneself before participating in the Lord's Supper. The second warning he gives here is eating and drinking without recognizing the body of the Lord. You bring judgment on yourself. He then gives a prophetic pronouncement that, listen, some of you guys are sick because of this, and some of the church members have died because of God's judgment on you for this. So then there's a call to self-judgment, to avoid divine judgment. It all seems pretty straightforward, but I think there are some things we should look at. First of all, what does Paul mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? 
I think in reality, Paul is not writing that believers are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, but rather their, their conduct is such that it is unworthy of the table in which Jesus' death is being proclaimed. So he's writing of their conduct as opposed to what they're doing in the actual event of the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't know if any of you have struggled with this, but in this passage, when it talks you know, about examining yourself um, and make sure that you're not eating in an unworthy manner, somehow we might imagine that it is possible for us to eat or drink in a worthy manner. We are never worthy. Okay, let's get that straight. We are never worthy. But as we come together as God's people and we have the Lord's Supper together, we need to think, am I thinking about others? Or am I only thinking about myself? Am I doing it as a part of the people of God, the body of Christ, or am I simply thinking about myself? When Paul says that we ought to examine ourselves, uh, I don't think that this is... uh, necessarily a call for deep introspection Uh, what one person is called psychic spelunking that somehow we go deep deep within our hearts and examine ourselves I think if we do that we will never come out okay I, I would not okay I can't speak for the rest of you but what I need to think about as I participate in the Lord's Supper is Am I thinking about others? Am I thinking about the body of Christ? Am I only thinking about myself? That, I think, is the self-examination. Because if you, if you put the spelunking together with, make sure you do it in a worthy manner, none of us are ever going to have communion, period. Okay. It is only the grace of God, and this is a wonderful grace that God has given us, that we can participate in this remembrance. But we can't do it alone. And we should not think of ourselves alone. And we shouldn't think of it as magical. That somehow we're ready to face the world because we have taken communion. The key to the entire passage for me is when Paul says that we are to recognize the body of the Lord. Are we eating the Lord's Supper without recognizing the body of the Lord? Some people see this as saying, oh, you don't recognize that this bread is special. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. Go back to chapter 10. The loaf, the body, the loaf. When we have the cup, it represents our union with Christ. But it is because of our union with Christ that we are to have union with one another. That is recognizing the Lord's body. We who are many, Paul writes, are one body. And if we fail to recognize this, it is, it is really a failure to recognize the significance of the meal, eating and drinking, and what it represents, and that is the salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal. It is a meal that we eat together as God's people, and we proclaim that because of what Jesus has done, because of his death, You and I belong to one another. We are brothers and sisters. That's the proclamation. That's how we proclaim his death.
Paul speaks here of judgment. I think that this is a specific case or specific cases. Um, I don't know that we should take this necessarily to say if we abuse the Lord's Supper, this could happen to us. I think that it could. But here Paul is dealing very specifically with the Corinthian situation. And he's letting them know God is not unconcerned about this. He is not unconcerned about this. By the way, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, the next chapter, Paul talks about the fact that we are all part of the body. We have gifts, but we're all part of the body. And if you're the eye, you can't say to the ear, you don't belong to the body because you're not the eye. We all belong together. I mentioned last week that it is in prayer that we find the overlap of heaven and earth. That when Jesus told his disciples how to pray, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we live at a point in which heaven and earth are crunching together. The present and the future are coming together. This is where we live. Prayer is to be a part of that reality. But I would extend that to say that in public worship, the Lord's Supper is is also a place where heaven and earth overlap. I said that I wanted to talk about the Lord's Supper in the context of Revelation 4 and 5. And here it is. In chapter 4, we see creation and new creation. We see the four creatures, and then we see the 24 priest kings that are on the thrones. Creation, new creation. In communion, we have creation and new creation. The creation is the fact that we are eating something that has been grown here. We are drinking something that has been grown here. It is of God's creation. It isn't magical. And I want to be careful, but it's not special in some sense. It is of this creation. Those, and there are some here today, and we've had people in the past who have wheat allergies. They can tell you. That eating the bread in communion will affect them because it is of this world. It is of creation. So is the cup. Some of you may remember years ago as communion was being distributed, someone spoke up. He was visiting with us and he said, is this wine? Well, he was a recovering alcoholic. That was not an insignificant question for him. We shouldn't think that somehow what we're eating and drinking is not of this world. It's absolutely of this world. But we are the new creation. We are God's people. And in eating of this creation, we proclaim that we are the new creation. We have been made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us how we are supposed to do communion. By the way, there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't tell us. Um, But there are certain things I think that we can capture, we can try to capture as we have the Lord's Supper. First of all, the place of service. It is our practice that when we have communion, two from the congregation serve the rest of the congregation. And this may seem like a very, just sort of a practical thing to get get it out so everyone has some, but it is in fact an act of service. And in a few moments, Dan and Lonnie will serve us. 
in a real sense, they will be servants to the rest of the congregation. And if you don't, if you haven't done this, I would encourage you to do it. I think it's a wonderful thing to be a servant to the rest of the congregation. Secondly, I think there's to be the reading of Scripture, and that's why I read from 1 Corinthians 11. There is to be the place of remembering. We are to remember. Then there's the place of unity. It isn't a rule, because the Bible doesn't tell us how to do it. But I would suggest that when we have communion, we eat at the same time and we drink at the same time. It's not orchestrated, but it's simply saying, I'm waiting for others. I'm doing this with others. I'm not just doing communion by myself. I was struck by the fact that some years ago a televangelist was telling people, okay, get your cracker and whatever you have to drink at home and we're going to do communion. You there at home and we here in the TV studio. Um, no. Communion requires that we be together. And I would say that we do it together. And lastly, when we have communion, it is an act of worship. And just like Revelation 4, it is creation and new creation. We don't need the creation to be transformed, transubstantiation. We don't need that. It is very much of this world. Wheat, grapes. Okay. But it is eaten and we drink as people of the new creation. We are new creatures in Christ. And as we begin this new year, we are Christians, and Christians are those who worship God. And this is to be seen at least in the reading of Scripture, in prayer, and in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Our Father, living when and where we do, we tend to be very individualistic. We tend to want to do things by ourselves. We thank you for the gift of your Son and for his sacrifice in this way in which we can remember that. We can proclaim it. But more than anything, on this day, I thank you that it's something we do together. We who are creatures, we who are a part of the new creation, together we can proclaim to the world that Jesus has come and has given his life that we might have life. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of each other, the body of Christ. And as we remember his death today, may we remember these all-important things, that we have union with Christ and we are to have union with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.